0: questions 12 through 15. I'll be asking the questions and we'll all confess the answers together. According to God's righteous judgment, we deserve punishment both now and in eternity. How then can we escape this punishment and return to God's favor? God requires that his justice be satisfied. Therefore, the claims of this justice must be paid in full, either by ourselves or by another. Can we make this payment ourselves? Certainly not. Actually, we increase our debt every day. Can another creature, any at all, pay this debt for us? No. To begin with, God will not punish any other creature for what a human is guilty of. Furthermore, no mere creature can bear the weight of God's eternal wrath against sin and deliver others from it. What kind of mediator and deliverer should we look for, then? One who is a true and righteous man, yet more powerful than all creatures. That is, one who is also true God. May be seated. So, tonight we're going to be focusing especially on those latter two questions, questions 14 and 15. Um, I'm not sure how many were here um, last year when we we talked about questions 12 and 13 in relation to Romans 2. Uh, But for those who may not have been here, uh, or for those who were here and it was May last year, so that's a long time ago, um, I'll quickly recap uh, what we covered but if you want the full explanation, I believe the sermon is, is posted on the church's YouTube page, so you can, you can go look at that. But in any case, those two questions we just read, questions 12 and 13, we saw how Paul, in Romans 2-2 especially, asserted the perfect holiness, righteousness, and judgment of God, and how God's law was the standard for that judgment. We also saw in Romans 2-6-11... That God's just requirement, what you have to do to meet the standards of that law, is a complete and full catalog of righteous deeds. That's the standard for reward on Judgment Day. Unfortunately for us, as the Catechism says, we can't produce that kind of unerring record. We're, we're not capable of that. We all know that from experience. Like the moralist Paul addressed in chapter 2 of Romans, we're stubborn and unrepentant hypocrites. We store up wrath for ourselves on the day of wrath. So that leaves us in a pretty bad spot. Well, this evening we're going to finish out this Lord's Day and see how the instructor, the catechism, continues this line of thought, what he adds in questions 14 and 15 on this topic. So we're going to look especially at those two questions. In conjunction with Hebrews 2, verses 14 through 18. So I'll go ahead and read those verses now. And I believe they're printed for you there on the notes sheet. So Hebrews 2, verses 14 through 18. This is God's holy word. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he's able to help those who are being tempted. Let's pray. Illumine our hearts, O God, with the radiance of your Spirit. Open our eyes to the beauty of your gospel and transform us by the light of Christ to think and do things that are pleasing in your sight. Unto you only do we ascribe glory, together with the Holy Spirit and your Son, our Lord Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, we'll start with um, a chance for someone in the room to impress everybody else. Look smart. Does anybody know what thanatophobia means? Thanatophobia? Yes, Dennis. Gold star. That's fear of death. And not like dead things, like you know, roadkill and stuff like that, but the fear of your own death, when you, the anxiety you feel when you contemplate the fact that someday your life is going to come to an end. So that's the word psychologists have coined to capture that feeling, thanatophobia. But while they easily recognize this as a psychological phenomenon, they have a hard time explaining it. Um, Eric Erickson thought that unless you found meaning or purpose in your life, you would always have this impending fear of death. That would just be with you all your life. Ernest Becker thought all other phobias came from this phobia, the fear of death. So uh, the fear of death is the root of all other fears, he thought. And Freud, of course, thought that it came from unresolved childhood conflict, like everything else. Um, But in Hebrews and the Catechism... The real answer to this question can be found. Humans fear death because deep down we know what awaits us on the other side of death, namely God's judgment, his righteous judgment. As Hebrews 10.31 says, it's a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Of course, we suppress this truth and unrighteousness, but nevertheless, it's always there under the surface. So what's the solution to thanatophobia? How do we get over our fear of death? Do we seek coping mechanisms from a therapist, learn meditation and breathing techniques to deal with these anxiety symptoms, maybe begin a regimen of medications? These things might help ease our troubles temporarily. They might alleviate some of the symptoms, but there's only one ultimate solution to our fear of death, namely the cross of Christ. And that's what we'll see as we look at Hebrews 2 tonight. So first, starting with verses 14 and 15, the pastor tells us first that Jesus partook of flesh and blood. This is a way of saying the second person of the Trinity became a man, a human being. Uh, It speaks of the incarnation, what we just celebrated uh, this Christmas season. But if he's simply asserting the the doctrine of the incarnation, that God became man, why doesn't he just say, since therefore the children are humans, he himself likewise partook of the same humanity? Why does he use this terminology of flesh and blood? Well, our flesh and our blood evoke weakness and frailty. We get visceral reminders of this, Every time we accidentally nick our finger with a knife, like I did a couple weeks ago washing the dishes, not paying attention to what I was grabbing in the sink, I poked my finger with the knife, pierced my flesh, and my blood started pouring out. Piercing even a tiny bit of our human flesh results in that outpour of blood. So the author is highlighting by using this terminology, not only that Christ became a human being, but that he even took on the frailty and weakness associated. With our humanity. After all, this is what allowed him to die. His body was pierced and his blood poured out because he was a true human being. Had he merely appeared to be human, as some have taught, there would have been no crucifixion. And had he been some kind of superhuman, impervious to physical injury, there would have been no atoning death. But Jesus was truly human. He really took on flesh and blood. Next, the pastor tells us the two reasons why Jesus took on flesh and blood. First, in order to destroy the devil. In an irony of ironies, the one who has the power of death is defeated by death. With the very weapon Satan loves to wield against the world, this realm of death, Christ struck him down. So, Who then, we should rightly ask, is the one who has the power of death? Well, flip to the end of your Bible and you'll see these words. When I saw him, I fell at his feet as though dead, but he laid his right hand on me, saying, Fear not, I am the first and the last and the living one. I died, and behold, I am alive forevermore, and I have the keys of death and Hades. Those are the words of Jesus Christ, recorded by the Apostle John in Revelation 1. So now, because of his flesh and blood death, the Lord of life holds the keys of death and Hades. So, the Son was incarnated in order to defeat Satan. And that is intimately related with the second reason the pastor highlights Jesus taking on true humanity to deliver his people from the fear of death. The slaveholder lies dead on the floor, and all his former slaves are just that, former slaves. They're now free men and women. Of course, we'll all still die, but Jesus has removed the sting of death. The devil can no longer torment us with the thought of our death because we know that we will not be condemned For us, death is only the next step toward resurrection and glorious eternal life with God. But how does all of this happen? What was it about the cross that defeated Satan and removed our fear of death? Well, we could sort of uh, logically think our way through it. Why is there a fear of death? Because of the divine punishment that our sin deserves. So how does Jesus deliver us from that fear? By removing the sin that incurs God's wrath. Because the Son really took on human flesh and blood, he condemned sin in the flesh, and by his blood we have redemption. The enemy is defeated, and we are freed from slavery to fear. Verse 16 comes in at this point as uh, an important reminder to us. Um, Have you noticed how fascinated human beings are with angels uh, all throughout human history, this has been the case. Uh, people have told stories of angels and demons and uh, these otherworldly things. You can see this even now in American culture, which is pretty materialistic and, and all of that. But we have lots of movies and TV shows about angels. Uh, Touched by an Angel, which ran for nine seasons. I have no idea how, uh, but I won't, I won't comment on that show. Uh, the Bishop's Wife... christmas time movie or the remake of it with denzel washington and whitney houston which is better if you ask me Uh, the preacher's wife angels in the outfield for the baseball fans and my favorite it's a wonderful life where for some reason the angels are stars I, i don't know how that works but the point is human beings are fascinated with angels and telling stories about angels, but reading Hebrews 2.16 is a reminder that Jesus was not concerned with the angels when he came to earth. He was concerned with humanity, for surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. So who are the beneficiaries of Christ's incarnation? Not angels, but the offspring of Abraham. Namely, Paul tells us in Galatians 3.7, those who have faith. Those who have faith in Christ. And what does he do for those children? Well, he helps them. And the image here, the word that we see as help, has the, this uh, image meaning of taking hold. So Christ grabs us out of our state uh, weakened by sin. Although we've been set free From slavery to fear, we are still weak and weary. And so so Christ picks us up, he takes hold of us, and he carries us out of our sin and misery to our eternal home. And how encouraging of a thought is this, that God has sent his son to become like us, to pick us up from where we are, helpless and hopeless, and carry us to glory with him. But you might be wondering at this point, what exactly does this have to do with Lord's Day 5 and these questions that we read just a moment ago? Uh, And that's a good question. If you look again at the answer to question 14, you'll see the author there is also exploring this idea of why Jesus took on flesh and blood. Because God will not punish any other creature for what a human is guilty of. It's a human crime, and so a human being must be punished. Therefore, Christ took on flesh and blood. He became a true human being in order to be punished in our place. The Catechism also tells us no mere creature can bear the weight of God's eternal wrath against sin and deliver others from it. So who can bear that weight if a creature can't? That's what question 15 gets at. The mediator and deliverer we seek must be not only a man to take our place, but God, true God. We'll see now in the remaining two verses of this Hebrews passage we're looking at how the author of Hebrews brings out both of those truths and the good news that comes with them. In verse 17, the author comes back to this idea of Christ being like us, but here he expands it. He says that Jesus had to be, it was incumbent upon him to be made like his brother's in every respect. So in verse 14, the pastor told us, Jesus took on the very same flesh and blood that we have, true human body. But here he says Jesus was made like us in all possible ways, making us assured that the likeness Jesus has to us is not artificial. It is true. There is a real human body at the right hand of God even now. And when Jesus was on this earth, he shared in the same frail humanity that we have now. If he leaned on his arm wrong for too long, it would fall asleep. If he ate something while it was too hot, he would burn the roof of his mouth. He got mud under his fingernails and his feet smelled. He was a real man. But why does that matter? Why is it important that he became like us in every respect? so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. This is why the pastor tells us it was necessary Jesus partake in our humanity. By definition, a priest must be a member of the group he represents. So the second person of the Trinity could not be our high priest as merely God. He had to become man. And by becoming man, he is therefore able to serve as our high priest. And on top of that, a high priest who is merciful and faithful. How is he merciful? He cleanses our sin and ushers us into God's presence. He continually intercedes for us. And because of his own suffering and temptation and trial, he is sympathetic to ours. How is he faithful? Well, we could think about this in one of two ways. And really, we should do both. In relation to God, his entire earthly life was one of faithful obedience to the Heavenly Father. But also he's faithful to us. He's utterly dependable. His promises he will make good on. We can trust in him and rely on him completely. He is faithful. So Christ, true man and true God, is a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. So what does he do in that service? What is his job description as our high priest? Well, the first thing here is at the end of verse 17. He makes propitiation for the sins of the people. By his unique sacrificial death, a human being who is also God, sacrificed on the cross, he turned away the divine wrath of God toward the elect. The way the pastor tells the story, the Incarnation took place first and foremost so that Jesus could be the spotless lamb offered up to make atonement for our sins. You and I were enemies of God, plain and simple. We existed in a state of degradation and spiritual death, and there was no sacrifice that could be made to change that condition. No animal, no matter how spotless of a lamb we could track down, the blood of that animal could not cover our sins and solve our sin problem. But God looked at us, rebels that we were, and he had compassion. He sent his own son as the sacrifice that we could not find or provide ourselves. And as the high priest who could actually perform the service that a sinful human high priest could never do. He died for our sins and offered up his own life as a sacrifice so that we could have life. And in verse 18, the author goes on to tell us, there's even more good news. As the high priest in service of God, he not only makes propitiation for our sins, but he is our helper in temptation. This word tempted not only includes the idea of being lured to sin, but also the suffocating pressures of trials in this life. Because Jesus himself endured unspeakable suffering. And he did it perfectly, not wavering in his faith, not disobeying in the midst of that suffering. He is now able to assist us in our suffering. He knows what we're going through. He has been there. He's well acquainted with pain. Physical, emotional, spiritual. So if you're going through pain, and I think all of us are uh, in one way or another, and to one degree or another, you can be encouraged that Jesus meets you in your suffering. As a true human being who has lived life on this earth, cursed by sin, being subject to sin, being sinned against, suffering. He knows what you're going through, and he says in his word that he helps you through. So what do we learn from this Lord's Day? Well, looking at these questions, these four questions, we can be assured that we're helpless on our own. That comes through loud and clear. We have to satisfy God's justice but we don't have the power to do that. And there's not anyone else in, who is a mere creature who can do that for us. No one can satisfy God's justice except the one who was made man. We've seen this especially as we looked at Hebrews 2. The catechism says we have to seek a savior who is true and righteous man, yet more powerful than all creatures, one who is also God true God. And that's who the author of Hebrews has been describing for us in these five verses. We see the Son of God taking upon himself the weakness and the frailty of human flesh and blood. And we're told that he does this not for the angels, but for you and for me and for all of us who have faith in him. And because he's like us in every respect, he is able to die for us, as our representative, as our substitute, defeating the devil and setting us free from the fear of death. And now he's able to continue serving as our high priest, turning away God's wrath, solving the problem of our sin, and ever living even now to help us, picking us up and carrying us through the trials and the temptations and the sufferings of this life that we will experience until We reach our heavenly homeland, but he will carry us all the way, all the way through. The Lord Jesus is truly a merciful and a faithful high priest. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we thank you for this chance to gather together to worship you and to hear your word. As we go away tonight, we ask that by your spirit you would cause the truths we've heard to take root in our hearts as we reflect upon the incarnation of your Son, the fact that he took upon himself human flesh and blood for our sake, that we may be thankful. Let us live in joy, knowing that the devil has been defeated, we are free from the fear of death, and your Son lives and reigns at your right hand, helping us through this earthly life. We pray this in the name of and for the glory of our merciful and faithful high priest, Jesus Christ. Amen.